I'm Steve, and back again with me, it's Jack Easton. Always a pleasure, Steve. Always, always good to have you here. And does that crying child ring a bell? Why, yes, it's America's youngest podcaster. It's Dalton, and uh, father of Dalton, Jake, is there. Jake, how you doing, man? I'm doing well, Steve. How are you? Doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. And, and thank you. You know, I'm glad you're here. Uh, glad Dalton could step in. I know he's a busy guy. Uh, and, you know, he gets a little testy about podcasting. He's like, oh, you guys are always podcasting. Uh, but as you know, uh, Myros, is, he's, he's going to be out for a little bit. And uh, people are asking, you know, the patrons are like, where's, where's Myros? The fans, they're, they're saying, where is our boy Myros? And you guys know Adam Myros, he already had the surgery to remove his lower ribs so he could suck his own dick. But he's not a guy who will just, you know, sit there on his hands and not push himself to the limit. So he's actually removed every single rib in his body. Uh, so he can use his his new slug like bendy uh, uh, you know uh, torso to actually eat his own ass. Ah. So just you know, it, it now there's a, there's a bit of a, a recovery time for the surgery. We we wish him well. Um, but uh, yeah, happy happy eating, buddy. We're here for you. We love you. Uh, if you guys want to send him a card or some flowers at the hospital as he recovers, uh, we'll get you that information. But. Anyways, uh, yeah, Myros is gone and we're doing good movies, which I also like to do because, I, I, you know, I like to think his, the, the last one before he, he took a brief leave of absence is Brett Michaels. And then when he comes back, I'll make sure that we're, uh, we, we pick right back up on that level of, of quality content. So, uh, but, you know, Jake is here and, and Jake, what do you bring to us? You bring us great things. Yeah. And also uh, thematic and, and topical because... You just moved into a brand new house. You got a fancy new room to podcast in. That's why people buy homes. And uh, your first thought was like, why don't I do some some real like old school home invasion shit? That sounds like a great thing now that I have my own house. <laughs> that's right, Steve. And now Dalton is assaulting the microphone, but that's okay. We press on here because that's what we do at Optimism mm-hmm. Vaccine. That's what we do. But uh, yeah, yeah, you know, it right. seems like once a year I get the opportunity to pick an episode of what I want to do. Last year we had David Lynch's L.A. Trilogy, which was a success. And uh, yeah, this I want to call surreptitious home invasion because <laughs> you can have your home invasions where, like, you're next, where it's people visibly trying to get in and it's like a siege and you have to fight them off but i think what's more terrifying is a home invasion where the guy is already inside the house mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah it's uh it's it's a good one and you know the, the other thing is too is this is like uh, you know you think of old horror tropes and urban legends and things like that and, th- and this is a pretty classic one I think there's even, you know, those, uh, those scary stories to tell in the dark books when uh, we, we were uh, young lads, uh, the, the only horror stories they'd let us read from an American library, Jack. Yeah. I don't think you, you guys had this. Um, the only thing available in your library was, uh, yeah, Leprechaun 1 through 4, because Leprechaun in the Hood hadn't been made yet. And, <laughs> so true. Uh, <laughs> Somebody yeah, said. It's, I mean, basically, it's, it's the old story of, uh, you know, someone keeps getting these disgusting calls from, a, a, you know, a prank caller or a creep or whoever, and then they call the police and it turns out they trace the call and the call is coming from inside the house. And I, it's, it's interesting for, 
a lot of reasons because it, this is associated with the urban legend. But I think when most people think of this, they think of one scream because of the amazing 10 minute intro in the original movie, uh, which was written as an homage to one of the movies we're going to be covering today, which is when a stranger calls. Mm -hmm. And that has a pretty amazing opening, like 20 minute sequence or so uh, where that exact same thing happens. But before we even get to when a stranger calls, I think it's even more interesting because when a stranger calls dropped in 1979, I believe. And there is a movie that uh, it hinges on basically the exact same <laughs> conceit of uh, some disgusting murderous creep is calling from inside your house and saying gross shit. And that's, Black Christmas, which, uh, yeah, okay, it's not, it's not Christmas time, but fuck off. This is a great movie. Uh, holy shit. You know, every time I watch this, it's, it's like a jolt of electricity because, I, I don't know, it, it's, it's wild that people don't associate this as, like, it, I, I gets lumped in with, like, the proto-slashers, even though it feels like the original slasher. Uh, but, yeah, I, I don't know, it, it still gets glossed over sometimes, and, I am in constant awe of one, how creepy this movie is two how goddamn good it looks yes. and three, just how effortless, effortlessly funny and, and raw the whole thing feels. It's, it's really fantastic. So yeah, good job. And I'm, I'm okay with doing a Christmas movie in the middle of April. <laughs> yeah. There, you know, it's always a good time to watch black Christmas. This honestly, maybe the more I watch it, the more this just inches closer and closer to maybe my top 10 of all time. Um, and yeah, going back to the genesis of this, I was always fascinated by urban legends as a kid and without fail, the one that consistently scared me was the babysitter and the man upstairs. Because again, you think of your home as a, like a safe place, a sanctuary that, you know, any violation of it is just unthinkable and perverse. But to have that violation occur, uh, before you even know it, uh, and then it may even be too late that's just a primal fear that I live with to this day. And even I'm not sure if I'm safe in my own new house because I have not yet explored the attic and uh, things are new and creepy. But uh, yeah, Black Christmas is my favorite horror film because of that. And you you hit every box, Steve. It's it looks amazing, like just the 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 darkness contrasting with just the nice glow of the Christmas lights on 70 film stock. It's just it's just such a wonder, and I, I never, ever grow tired of it. It gets better every time I watch it. Yeah, it's kind of fucked up that Bob Clark made this, but he also made baby geniuses and shit. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a shame, because, I mean, think of, think of the wonderful world where Black Christmas is the Bob Clark Christmas movie that plays 24 hours on American TV through the season. It's the only world I want to live in, honestly. Yeah. You know, no, nothing against Christmas Story, but Black Christmas is Bob Clark's greatest Christmas film, and it, like, you guys have said, I think it's, and just uh, every time I watch it as well, I'm just kind of like struck. I think it, I would categorize, I think it is probably like ground zero slasher content, you know. Um, oh, there's yeah. always a bit of a debate on whether or not, you know, what is or isn't. But I think, uh, you know, I think 74 Black Christmas, it's maybe the first slasher or, or very much in that first wave. And I don't think anyone's better to, you know, Halloween isn't better than mm -hmm. this movie. You know, it's uh, it's because it's packs in a remarkable amount of actual 
content around its character, something that the 80s slasher would largely get rid of there, you know, where everyone's just kind of an archetype. The, the archetypes here are set within this kind of feminine milieu that makes the entire film a really interesting feminist film, effectively. I mean, it's very much a film about women being preyed upon, but also their much more quotidian concerns, which tie in with a, a deranged killer in the attic. It's, it's a, a film about women being scared of men for a variety of different reasons. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just one of these kind of incredible films that just kind of emerged out of the 70s where American horror seemed just so alive through that decade because I think they hadn't they hadn't really figured out what modern horror looked like, you know, with the with the Hayes mm -hmm. Code falling away and stuff. And they were just kind of trying crazy stuff out. And there's just so many great horror movies that are kind of like the, the fact that we go, like, is it a slasher? Is it not? You know, I mean, there are a bunch of films that fall into these kind of categories where because the categories hadn't been fully cemented by the 80s they had and the 80s horror as much as i love american 80s horror it's you know it's very you know kind of it fits into categories it's very clean marketing structures around a lot of them even the great ones whereas 70s horror like this it just it kind of ebbs and flows into drama and thriller and and issues cinema in a way that you know kind of get pushed to the wayside in in the 80s where it's basically i mean we would pretty much just go back to the mother whore uh, uh, binary for everyone. Um, yeah, it's it's mm -hmm. it's really uh, this is just a hell of a film. Even I think even for non horror fans, I think this is a mm -hmm. film that actually would merit exploration. It really, it's got a lot of stuff happening in it. Yeah. Well, and and if I didn't know what year Black Christmas was made, and I just I just watched it, and I assumed that it was made after like a Halloween or something like that. I would automatically go, oh, it's it's just it's subverting all of the, uh, you know, the tropes of the American slasher and blah, 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 and, and getting all academic about it. But like you said, Jack, there's like it, it's not subverting shit. It's just there's there's no rules. There's no mold yep. to, to build it into. So it's just kind of doing its own thing. And that's why it still feels so fresh and so vibrant and, and so fucking alive, because uh, God, especially all the, the characters in the movie, all the women like um, the ones who are like horny and and weird and and they they survive much longer than the more like virginal reserve no one, yeah so. the first girl claire is arguably the purest one there and she's immediately strangled in a dry clean uh sheet it, which is also yeah. a terrifying sequence but <laughs> yeah, yeah it's great. it's it's such a it's crazy how much of like ground like ahead of its time this feels uh, because, you know, you could you make this movie today and all these girls are just going to be stock characters. There's, you know, there's the nerdy girl, there's the main girl, there's the slut. But yeah, everyone has like a distinct personality and like Margot Kidder is fantastic. You know, obviously she's not going to make it, but she still gives it her all. And it, yeah, even uh, even like Andrea Martin is kind of like the more n nerdy looking girl. She's, you know, rises up a bit at the end before Billy gets her. But it, it's mm. uh, yeah, it's a very nice that's and that's also, I think, what why this film has endured is that it's just it's populated by by people and and they're all all mm. fantastic. Yeah, it's it's kind of a surprise, honestly, that Black Christmas has been remade twice at this point. But no one's gone in for the prequel. 
and or the you know the extended universe which oh jack do you recall the 2006 version where they give billy a whole goddamn backstory okay no (laughs) i don't family i don't remember a lot about that but but i i did watch that but you know i i just feel like it's it's the kind of film that um you know, I'm kind of surprised more of an effort hasn't been made in relaunching it to kind of cr- like branch out because there's a lot of there's there are a lot of um a lot of kind of like what you say vagaries and like potential to do things. I'd completely forgotten the 2006 version. I remember not being as terrible as everyone said it was, but also apparently completely forgettable. So um oops, I guess I guess maybe they did do a prequel on yeah. them. I was like, you know, 2006 one is I mean, that's one of the earliest memories I have of being in a movie theater while everyone around me and when the credits started rolling were just booing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty impressive. It's a trick. I mean, it's a tricky film to remake because, uh, you know, because it, it, it's it's a very efficient genre film as we discussed, but it's also, I mean, it's got a lot of meat on it and either you, you've got to reshape the meat into something new or you've got to get rid of it and either way you're going to piss off a lot of people or you're going to set a bar that's mm-hmm. really difficult to get over and I think no one has no one has done this. It's worth, it's worth mentioning also, I mean, like, 74 was an insane year for Bob Clark because just prior to this film he also put out Death Dream, which is oh, yeah. uh, just another incredible work of horror. Um, and a quick a quick summary for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's basically a Vietnam film, but it's about a, a young boy or a young man who comes back from Vietnam and uh, he basically, he, he contracts a zombie virus and he becomes a, a killer zombie. But I mean, the clear, it's a film that's almost so, such a direct allegory. It's it's not fun. It's actually a quite a, an upsetting film. And it is it literally, it's about a family watching their boy change, you know, and kind of like from from zombieism slash PTSD. And it, it's a very direct line being drawn between those two things. I mean, at almost point, it's a social issues film, very thinly disguised as a zombie movie. And Clark was doing this thing. I mean, Death Dream is, it's not as strong as Black Christmas, I think in part because its allegory is so directly drawn that it, it doesn't, it doesn't allow as much breathing space, but it's, all, it's still just a tremendously interesting and kind of like impacting uh, uh, film and it, like it's just wild that this guy just <laughs> in the space of a year just dropped two pretty serious honestly like any horror fan should know these films uh, and he just kind of mm-hmm. dropped those and then he wandered off and did some other stuff I, I you know he, he ventured yeah, out of horror more towards, towards that and towards you know family dramas and ultimately whatever else he got up to in the 90s uh, <laughs> baby geniuses yeah, etc he had a pretty solid run. Like, uh, yeah, Bob Clark, 72 to like 76. Uh, he did Children Shouldn't Play With Dead mm-hmm. Things and then Death Dream and then Black Christmas and then Breaking Point, all of which fucking rule. Uh, then there's a, there's a little period where I, I tribute and Murder by Decree I'm not familiar with. And then all of a sudden you get the Bob Clark that people seem to be more familiar with, which is Christmas Story, Porky's, Baby Geniuses, bunch of bullshit like all like through the 90s and early 2000s just all fucking family films uh it's it's substantial it's, it's a weird swinger <laughs> i actually never knew he directed rhinestone a film i have seen at least half of on television 20 years ago uh, and i do recall there were rhinestones so at least i guess he he stayed true to the title that's true that's important yeah <laughs> uh but yeah, Bob Clark kicks ass. And if you're listening to this and you, and you haven't watched more of his work, fucking go out there and watch some of his early shit. 
Uh, like I'm not telling you to watch Porky's two the next day or anything, but uh, you know, maybe maybe his earlier work <laughs> might be checking out, might be worth checking out. And one of the other things that has endured about Black Christmas is Billy. We need to talk about Billy, uh, because he is fucking terrifying. Um, yeah, oh, yeah he's it's, great. You know, every, 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 you know, everybody's got your Michaels, your Jasons. There's all this guy who eventually has a backstory. Uh, Billy, you never find out anything about him. All you can really piece together is just what he's spouting out in his insane phone calls, which at some point sound like four people having a conversation together. Uh, and he mm-hmm. he's never completely seen. We just see his like hands and an eyeball and, a, you know, it's a male figure outline, but he's always kept in shadow. And yeah, there's no explanation for the guy and they don't even get him at the end. He's still up in that no. fucking attic. It, uh, yeah. When the cops leave. <laughs> that, and that's that's honestly like this movie is bleak as fuck, but it is nice that you, you feel like you're building towards a mystery. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, it's going to reveal that it's so-and-so. And pretty convincingly, they set it up so you think, oh, it's it's her, it's the Peter, girl's the boyfriend. boyfriend. Yeah. yeah, clearly it has to be him because he, you know, she's like hiding in the basement. He's being a real fucking weirdo about it. Uh, but no, he's just a fucking weirdo. And then, you know, if you haven't seen it, I don't know, plug your fucking ears, I guess. But uh, <laughs> it's it's this wonderful thing where she, I mean, she literally stabs her boyfriend to death to the point where she's like hysterical. And then the cops sedate her and put her in her bed. And then we're back to this kind of like, you know, POV uh, shot and it's, it's Billy still in the house. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's absolutely terrifying. And then the implication is that she's, dead basically yeah, yeah which is so bleak. Yeah, no, it's i mean the 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 kind of ur text of post-vietnam american cinema is very much you know that kind of like violence got reconfigured with the rise of the grindhouse cinema the fall of the Hayes code in the late 60s meant that american cinema was able to you know depict violence and sex in ways that it had never been able to do and kind of after vietnam had been blasted into everyone's living room you know cinema got real nasty for a while and it kind of it, it fell into this kind of like idea of violence as you know kind of random chaotic you know n- uh, removed from any kind of a moral uh, dimension i think you know this is where the slasher raised up from essentially was this idea that you know mm-hmm. there there isn't really a moral code to the slasher although they kind of like moved in these kind of things that developed of you know like popular kids and like sexual activity and so on to kind of create these moral trappings i mean honestly the idea is just that like you know it's just a string of victims who are just picked off one by one by some insane person who's generally operating in a completely impersonal goal killing solely for the Mm -hmm. sake of it and yeah black christmas kind of latches in on that completely and it it is billy is is a really fascinating killer as well because i mean He's he, also within Black Christmas. I mean, there's a broader range of things that happens. There's a young girl is found murdered in the park. Is it related? Maybe. You know, it's there's no confirmation. Um, even Billy himself is kind of like they're getting these lewd calls. Um, they refer to it as if because the film opens with Billy climbing into and getting into the attic of the house, and it's a point of view shot. We never really see him. And then we get the first obscene phone call, but it's not the first obscene phone call that this sorority house has gotten. So there's almost this, mm-hmm. like, th- there's a little bit of, like, and I don't want to get too, like, like, ooh, you know, it could be anything, you know, like, people trying to pick apart anything. But, um, like, there's almost a sense of, like, I mean, these obscene calls, I mean, maybe it isn't just Billy who's been obscene calling them. You know, it may be, 
is Billy even Billy? I mean, did he overhear one of the other obscene callers and just piece together part of it? I mean, there's there's an obfuscation within there or rather like a lack of clarity of what's driving what within the film, which I think is really important to its overall vibe, which is that it's like Steve said, just kind of really downbeat and depressing. Um, Mm -hmm. And you have I mean, there's a great scene where we're. the boyfriend who ultimately and meets his demise in the basement smashes a piano because uh, he's he's studying to be a pianist, a concert pianist, and he's his exam goes poorly, and he out of frustration smashes a piano and creates this horrible droning cacophonous sound, and it's just, it's just kind of the sound of the film. I mean, the the orchestra, the orchestration of the film sounds like that anyway, and there's this kind of this idea that it's just this world is just. Uh, you know, akimbo and just things are just happening. There's just a danger there. And it always just comes back to the girls, but there's, you know, just there's there's this sense of just terrible stuff is in the air in this like scenic Canadian college or whatever. I'm not even sure where it's supposed to be set. Uh, They're definitely Canadian though. And and that really is the best part, right? It's just that all, all the, the evil and the violence, it's just this sort of ambient presence that's everywhere. And whether or not it's connected, it's it's kind of impossible to say, but it's it's there and we see it, uh, whereas a lot of more contemporary horror films are very fixated on the who, what, when, where and why and making sure that like we as an audience understand those things. Uh, and here, because, you know, you've got, like you said, the, the horror cinema of the 1970s, where they're still trying to like find their footing and uh, basically establish all the tropes that were became well trodden in the 1980s. 1980s, you've got these categories that it's, it's, it's easy to start putting things into boxes. And then I feel like, you know, since the mid-90s, all we've been doing is pointing backwards and saying, like, look, this is how things are, you know? And uh, yeah, it's, it's just, it's so refreshing to watch a movie like this and just not have everything spelled out completely for me. Imagine that, yeah. like, uh, letting me fucking think about something for once. Oh, yeah. Incredible. You, don't, you can't, yeah, you can't even do a, a Black Christmas Explained because it doesn't give you anything to solve it. <laughs> Pretty much. Oh, no. Yeah. What is YouTube going to do when they pick up on this? I mean, like, yeah, and oh. there, there's great little detail. I mean, one of the things that struck me this time, which hadn't really struck me before, because obviously Olivia Hussey plays uh, one of the, the, the girls, and she is pregnant from her boyfriend, her concert pianist boyfriend, and she mm-hmm. wants to get an abortion. And he is adamantly opposed to it and trying to pressure her not to. Um, and he's going to give up his dream of being a concert pianist so they can settle down and have a family, but he wanted to give up his dream anyway. It just wasn't working out, but she still has her dreams. She doesn't want a child right now. She's not ready. But there's also, I, I noticed in the Christmas caroling scene, I mean, there's, there's a very, it's very funny the way it's offset. It's that Hussey's also the character in the film who is clearly the, probably the most amenable to actually children. You know, she she listens and perks up when they show up. Margot Kidder, previously in the film, has been giving a kid booze at a party. You know, she's and swearing and another guy's just calling kids little bastards, you know? And it's just really, I mean, it's this, you know, little point that's, that's made in there is that she she wants an abortion, but she's also, of all the people in the film, probably, you know, probably be a very good mom she looks like she's full of love and has you know loves children and stuff but that's not the point that's not what she's doing you know it's it's her own opinion about her own decision about her life this is you know like at the core of the debate on abortion and so on and it's just kind of very effortlessly slotted in you know like you know built into the into the dramatic fabric of this film that otherwise is you know like we say very disconnected a lot of its you know cause and effect elements 
the characterization is is very on point. It's it's very clear and clever and effectively built. And that's just I mean that's the film. That's why that's why it's so damn good. I mean the same way kind of like Halloween is one of the things reasons why the first Halloween film is so good is because the girls that John Carpenter builds each of them so well as characters in a very short time. Uh, and then mm-hmm. as the slasher movies proliferated, that became less and less important to the point where, you know, it kind of became almost a, you know, a joke to have even an attempt to make the movie about something. So, you know, there's something really impressive in the the economy and the the ambition of Black Christmas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's also vulgar as shit. <laughs> just to just to throw that out there and almost in a way that i mean i mean it's not like shocking i'm not clutching my pearls yeah. but again thinking about okay this movie was made in 1974 and comparing the lewd call here to the the lewd calls or the or the creepy calls and when a stranger calls or when a stranger calls back and the fact that you know you've got billy on the other line just like oh you're a pretty pink cunt Ugh. like it's just it's it's intense. It's also got great comedy, though, because at one point, a farmer shoots a cop in the ass. Yeah. That's, no, the comedy in this is fucking amazing. <laughs> they or the, uh, like, they the, don't the, like Oh, they them. hate cops so much. They're in the police the station, and, and the exchange. police officer's like, yeah, uh, yeah uh, what's uh, what's your phone number? Uh, and she's like, well, it's fellatio. And he's like, what? And he's like, She's like, yeah, it's, it's a new exchange, uh, fellatio 2578. And he's like, okay. And then they cut, there's a callback to it. Cause like later in the movie, a cop's like, uh, did you know that girl had you write down fellatio? <laughs> I mean, it's part it's of, hilarious. it's part of like a broader thing within the film that there is, you know, the cops are all men. There's no women police officers anywhere in it. And they just kind of, they're there and they have a job and they don't really want to do it. And they don't, you know, it's Christmas and they've, they, you know, they got to deal with some bullshit from like drunken mm-hmm. parties and stuff. And they're just kind of fed up, but they also have no idea of the female experience in the film. And, you know, the, the danger and the, the kind of pressing stresses that like Olivia Hussey's character, you know, with her boyfriend turning somewhat, you know, uh, when she tells him, when she decides to tell him she's pregnant, knowing that he'll probably become aggressive and threatening, you know, they, they just, they, they're completely on like clueless about this entire concept until, you know, it's too late. The film seems very much, you know, caught up with the concept of like, look, you know, as soon as something terrible happens to you, we'll be there to pick up the pieces. And that's, that's about as much as the police are entrusted with yeah. in this movie. Yep. That's exactly it. Uh, but yeah, again, it's not Christmas. I don't care. You should, have you watched black? If you haven't watched black Christmas, you should probably watch black Christmas. Should you watch the 2006? No. Should you watch the 2019? Absolutely not. It was a 2019 or was it sooner? Earlier, I think it was 19. Or, uh, 19. Yeah. Don't watch it. Don't fucking watch any of that shit. Uh, you know, classic rule of cinema. If it doesn't have John Saxon in even a minor role, it's probably not worth watching. And, uh, yeah, Black Christmas has John Saxon, so you're in good shape. Yeah, everybody go watch Tenebrae, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Also true, see? When has that rule ever failed? Exactly. Never has. Uh, but yeah, so, again, like, you've got this really just, you know, uh, this bleak fucking slasher movie, and then a few years later, 1979, um, the, the... ideal slasher mold is finally created basically uh you've got halloween it's wildly successful so all of a sudden you've got this director fred walton and fred walton goes hey i made a really great short (laughs) several years ago 
And what if we turn that into a feature length movie? And it, basically the idea was let's capitalize on Halloween. Sure. A, a lot of people probably follow this lead on that one. Uh, what happens though is when a stranger calls, the way it ends up playing out is not the movie you think it is. Because, and, and I don't know if this is because in, uh, what was it like, was it 2005, 2006, Six. 2007? Yeah. Six, okay. Uh, which is probably the same year as the Black Christmas remake. So uh, all of this is tying together, I guess. <laughs> uh, they, they remade When a Stranger Calls. And I am, I, that is the version that is burned into my head for some reason. And that is very much a movie about just like, being in a house and some creep trying to get you. Yeah, that's the the remake took the uh, opening 20 minutes of the 1979 film and made that feature length, which is probably what many people might expect uh, when they go sit down to see the original 1979 When a Stranger Calls. But no, the the stuff that is famous about that movie is really only a small part of it. And it's about an hour of a former cop, now a P.I., tracking down a guy who escaped from a psychiatric hospital and to with the express goal to eventually murder him is what he wants to do. Mm -hmm. It's it's yeah, it's just a broken system chasing after each other. And yeah, it, it, it's it's yeah, it's 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 strange. And it's actually really kind of sad, to be honest. <laughs> it's it's very weird because, yeah, it, it really is. It's got this incredible opening sequence. And there's parts of the rest of the movie that I certainly enjoy. But the rest of it is it's essentially Charles Durning just bumbling around a city in some, I don't know, like pseudo urban Western slash police procedural setup, just looking for this creep caller so we could blast him in the fucking head. Uh, and then you've also have like a, it's, it's like a jump ahead moment where the babysitter is able to get away originally. And then the rest of the film takes place seven years later uh, when she has a husband and, and children of her own and, this killer kind of comes back into her life. And that shit's funny too, because, you know, Carol Kane, who is amazing in this and just amazing overall. Uh, one thing I can say about her is she doesn't look like she's 16 at all. Well, it was, well, you know, confusing it's, 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 in the, it was the 70s, you know, 25 yeah. past yeah. Birth, it was, it was confusing. Yeah. And the opening scene where she's supposed to be a teenager is like, oh, that's that's a bit of a stretch. But then the second I saw the seven years later caption, it also cemented to me, of course, like, oh, Halloween is why this film happened, because, you know, Halloween mm -hmm. is the exact, you know, similar, you know, years later. It just kind of it ties yeah. together. So well. it's, it's worth mentioning also that 2006 remake, of course, is also remaking the film in the wake of Scream making the first part of the the original movie iconic so it's kind of a weird mm -hmm. a weird uh kind of you know stretching of the material because why not but yeah it's I, this certainly like was not the film i was expecting i assumed it was all one single location set piece kind of a thing nope um i was the, the film i was most reminded of for the middle sequence is um something like richard fleischer's 10 rylington place which is a really really grim serial killer drama if anyone wants to see it's very good it stars richard attenborough as a real life serial killer who murdered a bunch of women in the second world war um and uh you know just buried them on his place he just was a landlord and it's just, it's it's just this very quiet naturalistic kind of matter of fact presentation of a guy who murders people because of his own compulsions and because of his own his own mental problems that's kind of where this film has a similar thing. I think, is it set in San Francisco, I guess, from some of the, the 
locations. I'm not 100% sure, but it's kind of like it's mm-hmm. it's a very uh if it is San Francisco, it's it's probably the the bleakest and dirtiest that city is ever allowed to look in cinema. <clears throat> you know, it's it's out, that city always seems to come out a little cleaner than like New York through the era. No, it was all shot in L.A. Was it all shot in L.A.? I thought they had the yeah. big streets and the, the like the slopes and things. It looked didn't look like L.A. to me. But you know, if it's L.A., okay, that makes sense because it, it and it looks awful and and lonely and and cold and harsh and brutal. Well, According to Wiki, it was in the Brentwood area, which is where O.J. Simpson lived when his wife was murdered. Oh, well, there you go. That makes a lot what, of What an sense. interesting tie. What a callback that was. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. It's, it's... What a great place to drive a Ford Bronco. Yeah, it, Anyways, go ahead. So that whole middle section has that kind of, like, lonely man. kind of. I mean, it's literally the kind of... And we know who the killer is. We've, we've seen him, and he's, he's just kind of walking around. He's trying to talk to people and not really able to forge connections. He escaped from his mental institution. And he's just, he's not like, like it, what's interesting about the film is that like the murder that's described is absolutely horrific, more horrific than any movie or slasher of the time would ever have actually depicted, which is a, mm-hmm. the, reportedly he effectively tore two children apart with his bare hands. That's like the crime he commits in the opening sequence. Yeah. We never see it. No way they would ever put that on screen. Like it's absolutely horrific, far worse than like, you know, Jason Voorhees or Michael Myers type stuff, you know, with a, you know, clean kill mm-hmm. with a knife. Um, and he's just and now he's just he's just a, a guy wandering around being alone, being, you know, like for, it's it's almost like a sympathetic portrayal of him. He's he's just another homeless guy in a city full of them. And he's anonymous mm-hmm. and no one really knows about his past. And he doesn't seem to particularly know about it either, which kind of makes the tie back in that he pursues this the, the babysitter again a little bit. A bit of a stretch, I think, narratively, like it, it, it just feel like it's a film of three, three paths. Uh, you know, it's it's yeah. prequel, which is like this really compact, compact single story. Then this kind of stretching, languorous, kind of depressing, uh, you know, kind of like uh, urban decay uh, parable. And then it kind of like tries to pick up the first one again, but reshaped. Um, and, it, you know, it, it's it's a very unbalanced film. And I suppose that's, you know, if we were to talk about the movie overall, it, it's 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 a very awkward ride it's got a couple of transitional shifts in it that you have to Mm -hmm. kind of prep yourself for yeah yeah and and there's not a lot wrong with the individual pieces it's just they they don't fit together yeah they belong to three separate puzzles (laughs) like you said uh because yeah it's it it is a movie where there's no on-screen violence really at all i mean there's a little bit i guess at the end uh but i i think it's still it's still got an r rating (laughs) <laughs> because it's just like they just graphically describe to you all the horrible things that he does uh but yeah god it gets so fucking bleak in the middle too because he is this this kind of lonely like you said almost sympathetic person but so is every single other person that he encounters or that we're watching on screen like charles durning is just this obsessed cop who's just bumbling about at night just destroying his own life trying to murder this guy uh, at one point, the killer runs into this woman who's kind of a lonely bar fly, and uh, she has this encounter with him. And just every single person is a fucking degenerate. <laughs> and then, and they're like, "Okay, enough of that. We're we're gonna get back, and you're gonna watch him, you know, beat the shit out of her husband and and chase her around a house again because we you know want to circle back around to that. And does it work? No, but I guess in isolation, it's pretty great. Uh, but yeah. When people talk about when a stranger calls it, like, it's one of the greatest horror movies of all times. It's one of the greatest 20 minutes yeah. 
of all time. <laughs> yeah, and then also just to, you know, compare with Billy from Black Christmas, who we never meet and we don't know anything about, and he's just this terrifying, all-seeing presence who's probably unstoppable. This guy, his name is Kurt Duncan. He's from England, and he's he's like a... He, like he gets beat up in a bar. He's just such like a little drunken weakling. And yeah, really just sort of a a pathetic person, which, you know, is a very admirable route to take. But I think, yeah, the the legendary status of this movie really only goes to the first 20 minutes. And then, yeah, it's uh, nobody. Yep. Nobody ever talks about the bulk of the film. People don't, yeah, people don't talk as much about seeing our, our killer completely naked, collapsed in a, a homeless shelter bathroom, crying his eyes out. That's, that's yeah. Not, yeah. not as widely discussed. And something that wouldn't make it into most of the, the slasher movies that would uh, follow through the 80s. Uh, never let them get in their mm -hmm. feelings like that. No. Yeah. Not usually. <laughs> uh, I, I also <laughs> love the fact that we got a sequel to When a Stranger Calls because again, it was, it, it starred multiple Oscar nominees. I think, did Carol Kane actually win an Oscar? I don't know. I know Charles Durning has been nominated for an Oscar. So you've got these great actors, uh, Fred Walton, no schlub, and this was a wildly successful and influential film. And then there's, there's no sequel. It seems like you could just make these forever. And I'm surprised you know, 1979 leading into the 1980s, that this just didn't become another franchise. And I get that, you know, they, they leaned more into character-driven slashers, but even Friday the 13th kind of made some adjustments in that sense. So, uh, yeah, a li little bit odd. And instead, what do we get? Well, that's a great question. Uh, we get When a Stranger Calls Back, which is in 1993, so practically 15 years later here, it's made for TV, which is insane. And on top of that, it's not just, you know, a, a, another like just random movie or maybe maybe you happen to get um, just Carol Kane back or something like that. You get Carol Kane and you get Charles Durning back. And this is a direct sequel. It's just a long gap direct sequel. Uh, but. It's kind of amazing, if you ask me. And, and I think it, it, when it comes down to it, I, I like the, the big swings that the original goes for, especially um, that they, they sort of try to position it as, a, okay, well, Halloween's popular, so let's do this. But then they, they still couldn't figure that shit out. Uh, but just as a movie and the way it flows, I fucking love What a Stranger Calls Back because it is absolute batshit fucking lunacy. Uh, because this time around, it turns out that uh, Charles Durning has discovered that the, uh, the, the creep, who instead of calling is like fucking like shouting outside of the door of, of this woman who's babysitting some kids, uh, and, and the creep is a ventriloquist. So, uh, Jack, I, I know you weren't as high on this one as, as the rest of us here, but uh, can you name another movie where a ventriloquist in blackface performs with a faceless dummy in a strip club. You know, you know, I can. I, there, there are ventriloquist films. Uh, this was what magic with Anthony Hopkins at that, that one. I haven't seen it. Is he in blackface? No, is I he don't, in a strip club? I don't think so. No, no. I, the thing that struck me with this movie, and I, I kind of enjoyed this movie, but like fundamentally, like the central gimmick is that the killer throws his voice 
Firstly, I think they misunderstand that, although I, I can forgive them that, that he actually literally throws his voice so it yeah. sounds like it's coming from somewhere else, what I don't think you can actually do. Uh, I think you can just, you know, make it look like if you were if you were mouth isn't moving and someone else near you's mouth is moving, you could make it look like you're there talking or your other people's brains will assume that. I don't think you can make it sound like your voice is coming from 15 feet over uh, outside a window. I don't think that's. No. Don't think gonna I also work. don't think that's what ventriloquists do. Ventriloquists just talk without like moving their lips. Exactly. Yeah. I didn't think they I don't think it really works. But like, what I will say is like, oh god, Argento in his prime could have had a field day with this premise. This would have been oh, absolutely yeah. wild. And so it's kind of it's got that bedrock of like a, it's a pretty great central conceit. The 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 rest of the film though is is kind of a weirdly fried thriller like carol kane looks absolutely burnt out in this movie which kind of fits her character but like she also genuinely looks so tired in this film i was like starting to feel exhausted for her she just looked like she had to run a marathon every day to get to the get to the set um i, I, I kind of love her character in this because i, I mean basically the whole movie explores like what happens when you're traumatized and then you become so obsessed with that trauma that it just ruins everything yourself and everything around you. it's true she's um, not a great heroine to the girl she's trying to help uh no and, and and also watching the original and then watching this directly after as a long gap sequel uh it, it adds a few little like wrinkles and layers to her because you're like wait a second this is a direct sequel. I think if I would have watched this in 1993 and been like, oh yeah, I saw that movie. I remember it. And I probably would have just remembered the beginning, but I probably would have forgot about the fact that her husband doesn't fucking die in that movie. Like he's just like knocked unconscious in a closet and she has two kids. Whereas in When a Stranger Calls Back, where's her fucking husband? Where are her fucking <laughs> yep. children? She doesn't have him anymore. And then you're like, oh, it's because she's a fucking loony and she's so obsessed with what happened to her that all she does is to a virtuous degree somewhat pursues similar cases or tries to help women in similar cases but i don't know what happens to the woman that she's charged with protecting uh she fucking tries to blow her brains out because uh carol kane's off fucking around trying to find this yeah, carol kane gives her a gun to protect herself and fully feeding into actual statistics about gun ownership this poor girl tries <laughs> to kill herself with it she tries to kill herself yeah and then and then even worse she like doesn't even fucking kill herself so then she's in the hospital and we are given an amazingly creepy scene oh, where God. the fucking killer just like is in the hospital room while carol kane is visiting but carol kane doesn't know it and then it's just like creeping around this woman who literally blew her fucking brains out to avoid encountering this man it's it's fucking horrifying that, okay um, I, I yeah <laughs> more than maybe more than black christmas i was really excited to watch this movie because as much as i love black christmas and i think it's a masterpiece i also secretly really love this movie too and i think it's a a gem that nobody talks about but yeah it's i think you take all the good parts about the first film when a stranger calls i think they're tighter and done better here i actually prefer this film's opening because like the guy is still very much he's more much more involved like he's moving in and out of the house without her knowing like he's putting the kettle the kettle on the you know on the the oven or the stove and uh, moving notes around and shit um so it's a very thrilling opening but the scene you just described in the hospital is like one of the most uncomfortable things i've ever seen because our lead actress is in a coma from shooting herself in the head and he goes up to her body and he starts tapping her stomach 
but with each tap he hits her harder and harder until he's like full-on slamming a hammer fist down under her abdomen and she's just unconscious and it's like one of the most sickening things i've ever seen in a movie uh, in, in a TV yeah, movie, exactly. well, this, is, this is I think Showtime picked it up because I mean it yeah. does have strip club topless scenes too, so it's it's yeah. it's not it's like, like network in TV. So, but it is mm-hmm, kind of mm-hmm. it's, it is kind of a weird thing. Basically, it is the budget of a TV movie, but like some of the content elements I could slip into like you know theatrical stuff. So, gives it a kind of an yeah. interesting uh, kind of a, a kind of a presence, I guess. Those kind of movies have their own their own energy. Which maybe is something I was struggling to tap into because it, it's still it's a surprisingly sedate movie in a lot of ways. It kind of like it doesn't yeah. really escalate too much, and and then the finale is absolutely deranged. It's it's like, <laughs> yes, it, just, it, is. it just hits you, and you're like, sorry, what are they doing now? Is a guy like basically paints himself up like Rambo to hide in front of a pipe in someone's apartment in plain sight? It's like the, nothing. Mm. Nothing in the movie previously, I think, really prepped us for that being the central element of it. But, you know, hey, whatever. No. <laughs> there's some real creepy shit in this, too. Because, like, I mean, there's there's the goofball shit. Because this, this movie goes full fucking bozo mode. But in a very fun, uh, like you said, Jack, a, almost Italian way. Yeah, you, like, I mean, you could absolutely like easily... foresee a giallo covering a lot of the same story beats as this. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, but, you know... We do. We have that scene in the hospital, which is super fucking unnerving, yeah, and just fantastic. And then later, when uh, the three hundred year old Charles Durning is, you know, doing his detective shit, he gets into the apartment of the of the killer, and all he finds is a series of Polaroids, and all the Polaroids are are just like topless photos of the girl in the coma in the hospital, which is just like an extra, yeah. An extra layer. It's like, hey, were you wondering what he did after he punched her in the stomach while she was unconscious? He took pictures of her titties. That's what he did, and that's that makes it weirder and grosser. So, uh, yeah, it's great. It, it feels, I don't know, like there's there's kind of a low budget, almost like PM Entertainment hokiness to it at times, but then it goes it goes in super hard. So it's like, yeah, you've got the weird ventriloquist, but then also you have this stuff where. It's like, oh, it's it's really exploring some some aspects of uh, just dealing with with traumatic events in unhealthy ways that I think a lot of bigger budget movies or, you know, uh, uh, even less silly movies wouldn't touch. And that's kind of it's, cool. it's also got uh, like some really odd elements like. He works at a strip club doing a ventriloquist act. It's basically the worst ventriloquist act on planet Earth. They were completely correct mm-hmm. to eject him from the strip club angry because, you know, yeah. no one wants to see that in a strip club or anywhere. Uh, as, it's it's kind of like an avant-garde yeah, it's, it's kind of ventriloquism. Yeah, shitty, shitty ventriloquism. And, like, ventriloquism is not, like, the steadiest of art forms to begin with. But then he goes back into the changing room and he has this weird exchange with this, like, very young, virginal-looking stripper who seems like she likes him, and you know, and it's this really awkward kind of a scene. It's it's basically feels like the kind of the the low key, like the thing the first film didn't fall into because the first film was like, no, everything's awful, like the world is just an abrasive, brutal place, and you'll die alone. Uh, and this movie, it feels like they were kind of like, yeah, maybe you know, this girl, she's you know, there's someone there for him. What would have happened if you know they'd you know found solace in each other and it's this kind of like weird throwaway story beat and then he gets thrown out of the strip club and we never see her ever again and it's just it's mm-hmm. really 
kind of like, what, what movie did you guys think you were making uh, when you penned that particular <laughs> scene? But I, I think that's the When a Stranger Calls series. It seems like at all times they're not quite sure what film they're making. So, um, no, yeah. which is an interesting conceit, you know? And are you, are you guys say you prefer this one to the first one. And I mean, I think they're... I think they're both somewhat misfires, but I, I would maybe more gravitated towards the, like the, the naturalistic bleakness of that middle section of the first movie. But I mean, there, there's definitely an entertainment factor to this one. It's certainly it's a much more um, like classic movie thriller. You know, it, it, may, it makes sense oh, yeah. in how it progresses through events. So, yeah, I could I can certainly see that. Listen, Jack, all I'm saying is there is something extremely magical about a movie wherein a ventriloquist stalks and, and tries to kill women. And the person who has, has written this movie doesn't actually know what a ventriloquist is or does. Uh, that's fucking He's got cool. to soup it up to, yeah. to make it interesting. Yeah, he, he throws his voice. And then he does, like, weird chameleon man camo on top of that. <laughs> Which I didn't get at all, because all we ever see this, this ventriloquist do is he does, like, a... He, he, I mean, it's black. It's it's not. I mean, Steve, let's be. It's not <laughs> blackface. It's from, it's from Bunraku, kind of like you know the the thing where you you okay. doing black, so you just have a spotlight, and you know, so it's not it's not blackface really. It's although <laughs> when they throw him out of the club and he's in an alley in the United States, uh, fully in black, you know, makeup on his clothes. Yeah, I don't think yeah. anyone would care that it's not actually blackface. I think that would have been a really funny scene to add. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe maybe when they remake yeah, it would have been great to have him yeah like down on his luck and, and just walking down the streets trying to explain you know like what the fuck trying dude? to explain theories of Japanese uh, theater to people as he walks yeah. through the town with his face fully blacked up by the hey are you in blackface uh, uh, actually this is a uh, the ancient Japanese art form wherein uh, a spotlight is placed yeah the ch yeah, chances so are he, he wouldn't like have made it to the hospital to take those photos. Yeah, but nothing about that, because whether you're doing, uh, you know, Japanese ventriloquism or blackface, I, it's really just uh, it's it's kind of a one color thing, yeah. really. You, you know, you're kind of you're kind of leaning on the black part on your face. So then when he shows up later and he's like, I have meticulously painted myself to blend in like a human chameleon <laughs> to the wallpaper inside of Carol Kane's house. Well, shit. I mean, no, I didn't see that coming. Uh, and again, is is that something that the writer believes a ventriloquist does. Is, is there an implication uh, like, that he was in there before and took lots and lots of photos for reference to work on this makeup? I mean, maybe, but I, it's not in the movie. And the answer is, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> I just, I love it. I just, it's, it's maximum bozo. And the movie doesn't care that it doesn't know. Like, really, he's just like, I, sure, this is what he does. Fucking accept it. And then I go, yes, I will accept the stupidest thing I've ever seen. I love you. Yeah, um, it's it's great. This movie would should have won twenty seven. He kind of, I mean, yeah, I'm he kind of he uses the the all black the shadow face makeup to hide from Charles Durning in the alley, and maybe he used that. Hey, what if I took this to the next level? And I you know took some like brick and like a pipe, and I you know moved into Jill's apartment so that I can disguise myself as her. And uh, mm -hmm. and and yeah, the, he also. Do you guys notice that when he finally like emerges from the wall and attacks, he's wearing a thong. <laughs> Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Fucking one piece great. he's got on is with all the makeup. I I laughed when I saw that. I mean, given his skill set, I just think you know it, it's a shame that he had murderous tendencies and then liked to prance around in a banana hammock because he would have been great at children's birthday parties. You know, he he can do a good ventriloquist math if he wants to. Clearly, he's got face painting down. We've established that. Uh, but he he's chosen to kill. Uh, 
and he also chose to kill probably a, a woman with the worst haircut I have ever seen in my entire life. The girl who, who plays the teenager in this, again, not a bad actress by any stretch, but the fact that not a single human being sat down and said, we do something about your hair. No, she starts uh, is, off as like a Winona Ryder type with the little kind of like, you know, short haircut. Which is also shitty. Well, yeah. you know, <laughs> and somebody like, I mean, then, okay. But her solution to that was like, make it longer and Yeah, back. they're basically <laughs> like, make it, make it a mullet, but pretty. This is how she, she came out. And it's like, what the hell yeah, is happening? You guys, are, you guys are ragging on this trauma haircut too hard. I mean, the poor girl's been through a lot, you know. <laughs> it's true. I think Listen. someone should have done a kindness for her and just be like, no, no, you don't need to. Because it's not like it's a style that doesn't require, you know, upkeep. You know, yeah. she could she mm -hmm. could have become lazy and not cared about it. No, she she studiously maintains a weird prissy mullet. It's an insane mm -hmm. look, even even from the nineties. I think the problem is, you know, when when a lot of women uh, have like you know negative life changing events, their first inclination is to cut their hair short or get bangs. And her hair was already short, and she already had bangs. So what do you do? And I guess the answer is you grow a a, a disgusting truck stop mullet. And, uh, I suppose yeah, that's, I suppose that's the wonderful. answer. Yeah, well, one other thing I wanted to point out in this movie that I thought was nice, and it's, again, it's maybe, like, I think I could grow to like this movie more. I feel like maybe this time I watch it with too much of the shadow of, like, what this film could have been. There's a great thing where, mm -hmm. where she is making tea, or she is, you know, she's a kettle on the, on the stove, and she takes it off, and she goes upstairs to check on the kids, and then she hears the kettle whistling, because the guys put it back on, but the whistling sounds like a car horn, which is a really confusing audio trick, but I think you know it's. I think it's very much done on purpose because the guy, the the person she's been corresponding to, is talking about his car being broken, you know, and she's waiting for mm -hmm. the parents to get home. So a car horn plays that interesting, but like it's it's a very you know that's not what a whistling kettle sounds like, you know. And the sound guy didn't fuck that up, but like he's not like oh, I have no idea. I'm just guessing here. Like I think it's a clear audio trick that and you know the ventriloquist kind of gimmick. There's some really cool swings here you know i feel like you know the play with the audio like that is is kind of good stuff and it's just i feel like the film never ratchets it up hard enough on that you know i think there, there's a way more you know kind of zany playful film here and i you know i mean maybe it's just the fact that i mean it is it's showtime they're probably like look it's got to be 90 minutes long and don't fuck it up you know um <laughs> but you know it, so it's kind of like i i can't help but look at this and think like Frankly, you know, Argento was was struggling to make movies by like the late nineties. He wasn't getting the same budgets. It's like, man, he imagine when Strangers called back the Italian edition. It would be absolutely bonkers. I, I would love to see that, but I, I think yeah, your viewing conditions probably weren't ideal. What you should have done is you should have just came to my house, and then every few minutes I would have stood up and pointed at the TV and been like, yeah, because <laughs> that's what I was. I was really into. Now we need the Steve audio commentary. Yeah, that's it's an audiovisual commentary. You put me on a separate smaller screen, and I'm just pointing at things that I like enthusiastically. You wearing a thong? Absolutely, absolutely. Wow, the, every day when a stranger calls back, 4D experience. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, I'm, the philosophy I live by in life is fucking dicks out for strangers. So you know, you throw on when a stranger calls, I'm I'm putting on the banana hammock. That's how it goes. Beautiful. Um, <laughs> the 4D <laughs> experience. Me just windmilling my dick around in your living room. Think about that. A lot of people, a lot of people would pay for that. Maybe hard to say. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. This, this is great. And it's, it's another oddity too, where 
every once in a while we'll watch a movie and I'm just like, why the fuck isn't there an audience for this? And I don't, I don't know if it's distribution rights or the fact that it was a made-for-TV movie, but it is mind-boggling to me that this is just kind of sitting dormant, largely unwatched, and I, I hope that, you know, uh, a Severin or a Vinegar Syndrome or a whoever is able to pick this up and, and maybe uh, give it a little distribution, uh, give it a, a nice release, because I, I would love to hear an audio commentary on this. I, I want to know more about the production. I want all the fucking special features on this. Yeah, thing. this one really feels like, a, I think Shout Factory did put it out on Blu-ray. Um, but like it, really? Yeah, okay. I think I think they did. But uh, yeah, this would fit in so well in the, you know, the primetime panic that Fun City Editions did mm-hmm. or the Finnegar Syndrome had a TV horror kind of TV thriller set as well. And honestly, this movie is better than most of the movies that were in that set. Uh, you know, so yeah, yeah, it could it could be a fun addition. I I don't know if that shout blue is still in print or not, but could be worth tracking down. Maybe maybe it's got a, a an audio commentary of a man screaming at the television. You never know. I hope so, and because this movie doesn't look like shit either, which is another minor miracle. Um, right on the cusp of of turning into like you know shot on video trash. I think this, they got lucky and were able to shoot on film. Uh, and, and we were watching it. I think. The, the copy that we had was not no it looked it looked like so. shit on Tubi where I I watched it but that was purely mm. a resolution issue it absolutely yeah, is not yeah. what the film looks like no no yeah. <laughs> there I so this this could uh, yeah I, ahead, I can't sorry. say yeah so Shout did release this and they not only is it a pretty clean print of the original uh, camera negative but also they included the uh, the TV framed version one point three three to one. Or if you prefer, you can watch the uh, you know the more widescreen one point seven eight to one. Oh wow! And then there are a handful of features on there as well. I haven't checked them out yet. I but, wonder was uh, it ever prepped to be matted to like a widescreen, or did they just do that for fun? Just um, I mean, why not? As long as you're as long as they they give the original aspect ratio, I like go hog wild, do whatever the yeah. hell you like. But yeah, I wonder. I wonder was it ever planned for that? Some TV movies in the U.S. Mm-hmm. did get theatrical releases in other in other markets, so. Maybe that was considered for this. Could have happened. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'm I'm sorry to Shout Factory for complaining that someone should release this when it's already been released. If you no, you can that. always complain about Shout Factory. They annoy the hell out of yeah. me, and they have awful cover well, art. Yeah, I mean that and that. Uh, I guess <laughs> I'm looking at it now on the Shout Factory website, and uh, they were smart enough to use the original artwork, so they didn't have a like a, a small handicapped child fucking draw the artwork like they normally do. <laughs> that's that's impressive yeah. great that's good yeah I, I i still like every time i see that village of the damned uh cover that scream factory did there there is like i could have the fucking ceo of of shout factory just sit me down and look me square in the eye and be like oh, this this is a professional artist we paid a professional artist i would not fucking believe him that is a child you cannot tell me someone above the age of nine fucking did that it's it's not possible. I mean, if the, if dark. if there was that, if they did that, do their artwork for when a stranger calls back, we would probably get that faceless dummy on the cover. You know, that guy would pop oh, up yeah. in there. That'd be good for <laughs> sure, for sure. Uh, but yeah, uh, great movie. Check it out. Grab it. I mean, grab the shout release, or uh, I guess watch it on Tubi if if you don't mind commercials and stuff that kind of looks shitty. But uh, yeah, it's it's out there. So. Look at me doing my homework as always. Yeah, uh, yeah, there should be a release on this. Oh, I'm smart. I pay attention. Uh, anyways, uh, yeah. So I guess we should wrap things up. So Jake, what are you putting over this week? Yeah. Um. All right. I've been dipping my toe into the uh, franchise of one Lupin the Third. 
Um, oh, weeb alert. Let's yeah, go. That's right. That's right. So here Adam in Myros, for a tune second. in. <laughs> mm. No, it's basically like a, a Japanese James Bond, which I'm really cool with. It's, you know, it's a in completely episodic franchise where each film is sort of independent of one another. Um, but he is known to be a goofy guy, but if you do want more of the serious edge stuff, which I prefer, uh, check out, uh, this filmmaker Takashi Koike directed a series and then he directed three feature films, uh, which sort of revolve around one of Lupin's crew members. There's Jigen's Gravestone, there's Goman's Bloodspray and Fujiko's Lie. And, uh, each one kicks ass, uh, especially the first two. So I would, uh, and they're only like about an hour long anyways. So I would say, yeah, if you want to check something out that's very stylish and at times very bloody, uh, put those on. They're a lot of fun. Nice. Yeah. Jack, what are you putting over this week? I'm, I'm going to put over another weird horror hybrid movie that I watched recently, which is uh, Samuel Hung's Encounter of the Spooky Kind, which is uh, from 1980. Really, really fun movie. It's basically kind of a martial arts horror, and there there aren't a lot of those. Uh, there's not a huge amount of, of overlap between them. I was thinking, you know, something else like Young Wu Ping's Dreadnought is another kind of an interesting example from around the same time. It came a little later, which is almost like a martial arts slasher movie. And, you know, there just there aren't many of those. Um, this one has some really great stuff in it. Uh, lots of, like, uh, you know, Taoist mysticism, uh, magic stuff. Sammo Hung wrestles his own possessed right arm seven years before Bruce Campbell would do it in Evil Dead 2. So, you know, it's kind of like fun. I feel like De Ted Raimi absolutely 100% saw this movie. There's no question in my mind. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, too, Ted Raimi did produce uh, Hard Target. So, I mean, he knows Hong Kong filmmakers or he must have some stock in them. Um, but yeah, really entertaining movie, lots of comedy, but the but the, the horror elements are pretty effective, pretty solid, some really kind of weird, gruesome monsters in there, some really great practical effects, they definitely hurt a bunch of people, you know, which is really key to the Hong Kong movie paradigm, you know, it's like, how did you mm -hmm. manage to do that? It's like, well, we just don't value our personal safety, and that's just one, that's the alchemy, the secret recipe for making great cinema. So yeah, encounter the spooky kind. Uh, check it out. Love it, love it. Well, I'm going to put over a little movie that I watched the other day called Grave Robbers from 1988. All one word, believe it or not, Grave Robbers. Uh, it's directed by Straw Wiseman. Do you think he's related to Fred Wiseman by any chance? <laughs> we'll, have to, we'll have to bring that one to the other podcast. Yeah, I'll have to ask Sean about that, because I, I don't know. Because Straw Wiseman also did American Beach House and Bikini Model Academy, so I figured... You know, it probably probably related. Gosh, to entire Fred's academy for bikini modeling—they must be the—they must yeah, be the exactly. best in the business. <laughs> I, I wonder if it's—it's it's probably like four hours long, and you know, there's a lot of procedural <laughs> stuff, and I, I bet it's really great. Uh, but yeah, anyways, Grave Robbers is fucking weird, and that's coming from someone who has seen a lot of fucking weird shit, and it's the kind of weird where it, it's just got. A vibe that's a little bit off kilter to the point where it sets the whole thing off its axis, and it's it's compelling because of that. I, I don't know any other way to really describe it. Um, it, it's got the same kind of energy as like a Twin Peaks almost, except uh, Twin Peaks, but it's got a five thousand dollar budget, and it's mostly about necrophilia. So uh, <laughs> it's it's 
it's fucking you know, I was, wild, I was going to say earlier, actually, about when a stranger calls back that the living room at the front is like every 90s living room looks exactly the same. And the second I saw that, I was like, oh, it's like the living room at Twin Peaks, which is also just a 90s <laughs> living room. They all look the same. Uh, but anyway, yeah, exactly. Just want to put that out there. Uh, but yeah, Grave Robbers, I highly, 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 highly recommend watching that. If you're into um, just just weird low budget horror shit. Um, or, or this podcast, this is very like optimism vaccine wavelength shit. I mean, it starts off with a, a former prostitute turned waitress is working and a random man comes into the restaurant she's working at, proposes to her, and then immediately she goes home with him to his hometown and finds out that he's an undertaker and, and just marries him anyways. And then wouldn't you know, he's fucking the corpses. Uh, and then wants to turn her that into a corpse so he can see. So he's corpse. robbing. Yeah, just, he's robbing the grave's virginity. Is what's? Yeah, I I, I don't know where the grave robbing <laughs> really comes into play here. Like at one point, a, a random woman dies in in a car accident, which may not be an accident. And then like this like fucked up fake Eric Estrada looking guy who's supposed to be her brother is like, oh, they stole her from her coffin. Ah, they're robbing graves. You know, throughout the rest of the movie, it seems like they're just they're just throwing her on the embalming table and just kind of doing like weird, touchy, sexy stuff there. So it's really hard to say what's going on, even from a, a sexual standpoint. At one point, the, the protagonist goes to the library and she tries to check out a book called Sexual Perversions to try and figure out if she can figure out what's going on. And even through that, I don't think we really land on what exactly is going on, because this isn't your typical you know, a uh, uh, penis into undead vagina penetration going on here. It's it's some weird shit. There's electrocution going on, uh, and then and then at one point a, a skeleton rides a motorcycle. So a lot of great things happening in this movie. <laughs> it is, I, I don't know. There's there's a, tonally it doesn't make any sense either because most of the time. Like, it's got comedic moments, but it's not trying to get you to, like, laugh at the movie. It's trying to get you to kind of laugh with it. Like, there's actual jokes that are funny. And then at the end, as the credits are rolling, it does this weird punch-pulling thing that is the biggest slap in the face I've experienced from a film in a long time. Very interesting. Very fun. Very fucking weird. Grave Robbers, 1988. Fred Wiseman's brother. Uh, draw. <laughs> <laughs> And so, uh, if you enjoy things like, uh, you know, Strangers Calling, Strangers Calling Back, Black Christmases, or uh, Necrophilia, do us a favor. There's a link in the description of this podcast, and it'll take you to our Patreon page. And then from there, what you can do is you can give us money. And why would you want to give us money? Well, if you give us money, a couple of wonder things, wonderful things will happen. One, we'll be able to pay for the rest of Adam Myros' surgery. Uh, you know, he is in recovery. We want him to be able to recover so there's not scar tissue and he can effectively eat his own ass. Uh, in order to do that, we need money. Uh, it also helps us pay for podcasting. Podcasting is it's expensive. But rest assured, if you give us money, it's not like we're not going to give you anything in return. Oh, no. You get an entire back catalog of optimism vaccine written content and exclusive patreon episodes of this podcast uh, in addition to that i'm going to send you a present if you live in the continental united states you lucky dog you you are going to get a, a movie from my personal collection it's going to drop 
into your fucking mailbox. How exciting is that? Does that sound exciting to you, Jack? Oh, I mean, I, I do love movies dropped through my mailbox. Yeah, it happens sometimes. I have to pay for them. Um, you don't, well, I mean, I'm going to say you don't send me movies, but that's not true because I own a laser disc of like fucking Da Vinci's <laughs> War. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of my favorite things to do is to mail strange packages to my friend's house. And they're like, is this from Ted Kaczynski or just Steve? And then most of the time it's me. Uh, <laughs> mostly. Yeah. Mostly, mostly. Every once in a while you get like a weird environmental manifesto and uh, some, you know, arsenic and well. Uh, yeah. So you get a movie in the mail. That's super cool. And then at higher tiers, you get even more benefits. So if you donate at $5 or above, you get to vote in polls like our, our poll uh, that netted you the episode last week, the Brett Michaels episode. That was a Patreon poll. All the patrons said, please, Steve, give us Brett Michaels. We want to hear you talk about Brett Michaels more. And we said, okay, that's a great idea. And, uh, you know, also you get your name read out on the air. That's exciting. So you could be Hoofy Hoof. You could be CWW. Evan, uh, there's more people on this list that I'm not looking at right now. Ryan. Ryan, you could be Ryan. You could be Dustin. You could be Paula. You could be anyone for $5 or more. And then, of course, if you want to donate $25, and you could do that as a one-time thing or uh, reoccurring, that would be lovely. But for 25 bucks, you want to throw us $25, you can choose anything you want for an episode. It's all yours. We've had a few already, and people were nice, and they chose nice things for us to talk about. Imagine that. It's, all, it's so weird. Our patrons are so kind to us, and I feel like I'm a little antagonistic. Would you say I'm a little antagonistic? I, I think we should cue Jacob based on, like, I mean, isn't, it, hadn't, it really occurred to me. It's like, you know, we had three good movies here, and it's like, yeah, the last time I got to pick was david lynch movie it's like what the why are we letting steve decide this shit <laughs> what the fuck are we doing <laughs> yeah it's it's weird it's it's almost like every time almost every time i i have an idea it, it doesn't work out for us but oh well oh well um yeah anyways that's it just donate some money It'd be great and if, if you don't want to donate money you just want to say hello optimismvaccine at gmail.com uh, Adam Myros always smashing that refresh button to read your emails. Uh, we we love to hear from you guys uh, whether you have recommendations, uh, you know, death threats, marriage proposals, what have you. Uh, besides that, you can tweet at us at Optimism Vaccine or whatever, man. Just 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 sit in silence. That's fucking fine too. We don't care. But uh, yeah, uh, gentlemen, thank you and uh, Jake. Thanks for picking good movies and increasing the the value of my life instead of making me want to fucking die. Uh, and I guess we'll be back next week. I'm going to kill you. Mm -hmm.